0: Welcome to the Price Lab podcast, a series focusing on digital humanities and how scholars got to where they are now. I'm Stuart Varner, the Managing Director of the Price Lab at Penn. On today's episode, we talk to Dr. Jim English, the John Welsh Centennial Professor of English at the University of Pennsylvania and the founding faculty director of the Price Lab for Digital Humanities. A specialist in modern and contemporary British fiction, his essays have appeared in PMLA, Representations, The New York Times, The Atlantic, Harper's, and the LA Review of Books. Professor English discusses the formation of the Price Lab and how he incorporates digital humanities into his teaching and research on the sociology of literature and reading. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about where the Price Lab came from.
1: When we first started exploring DH here, really the only thing I knew about digital humanities was the stuff that had been going on in literary studies, chiefly the work that was being done at the literary lab out at Stanford under the direction of Franco Moretti, whose provocations to literary studies to stop reading closely and start reading distantly and computationally had made uh, big splashes in uh, in my discipline. So that was what I knew about, but I, I did know that there were many other things going on under this really loose and big classification of digital humanities. So the idea initially was to map the terrain of digital humanities and especially to map it as it pertained to things going on at Penn. What is being done at our university that would be part of digital humanities broadly defined? Who is interested and involved in those things? What were some of the resources, infrastructure that might be roped into an initiative? And to figure out whether we had enough going on to really, you know, make a move in this space. When Michael Price came in, with the big gift that got us started. It felt like we did. The Price Lab originated as a pilot program from within the Humanities Center. We wanted it to be within the Humanities Hub, close to the Humanities Center, close to the action in the interdisciplinary humanities, as opposed to being a unit in what are now really our partner entities around the around the university. We really wanted the Digital Humanities Lab to be part and parcel of a kind of nexus of humanities operations and that's, that's really what has evolved. So we now have the Wolf Humanities Center, the Price Lab for Digital Humanities, the Penn Program in Environmental Humanities and a new Humanities Mapping Lab all housed together It really was an exploratory initiative. There was not, on my part, any vision of what digital humanities was or should be or had to be. It was a way of trying to coordinate and connect things that were going on at Penn to make them more productive. We were hoping that we would throw up some new possibilities for, for people. Digital humanities is not really a thing and it's not at all a st- stable set of things. It's a way that we have of of naming or gesturing toward a number of concurrent developments and, and activities within the, the humanities itself, a very large and rather inchoate set of, you know, of, of, of research streams and pedagogical methods. It's best to keep it open-ended and to, to be opportunistic and to work with the resources that you actually have on the ground instead of insisting that things ought to be a certain way. I do
0: want to get you to talk a little bit about this project you did with some undergrads around the National Book Award.
1: When I was the chair of judges for the National Book Award in fiction in 2016, there was so much reading for that price we had to the, the judges had to each each read about 120 or 130 novels in the space of just a, really mostly in a couple of months and so i didn't have any time to prepare a separate class and do a bunch of additional reading for the class that i was teaching in the fall so i, I decided to just teach the a class on the national book award where Students would read a couple of like classics or controversial winners, but also they would read the shortlist for the, the 2016 prize in kind of real time as the judges were deliberating through September and October and then making their selection and announcing the, the, the prize in November. So the, the prize is nicely coordinated with the timing of the semester. It was a really fun class, and it was kind of a mess. Like these workshops, these labs were kind of, you know, we we were ba- we were mainly learning that um, gathering and structuring data is really hard, and that you need a lot more data than you think you do, and that it's going to take a lot longer than you could ever imagine. Um, so that was a big lesson that came out of it. But we had a rollicking good time in the in the class, and I think four yeah four of the students in that pretty small seminar sized class went on to do further independent work in data-driven literary studies and made it really kind of the capstone of what they were doing in the English major at Penn. So so I, I felt like this is actually attractive and interesting to students. It doesn't take them away from literary studies, but it gives them a way to do something in a kind of data science as well that they found rewarding. As a way to structure that class, I decided not to do it as a digital humanities class, exactly, but to do it as what I called a a primer in data-driven research in literary studies. The idea was to have the students who were reading these novels gather data about the authors, their previous works, their educational backgrounds, where they went to a writer's workshop if they did, what other writers had gone to that writer's workshop and also been shortlisted for the National Book Award, who were the authors, uh, agents, and book cover designers, all this kind of stuff about the publishing industry and the networks of personnel and the relationships um, among um, the kind of different pieces and cogs of the American Temporary American fiction scene. One of the students in there, Savannah Lambert, she got very interested in the way that gender affects the prizes, the relationship between gender and winners, also nominees. And everyone, I think, knows that book prizes tend to go to male winners, and that um, in the U.S. and the U.K. N- right now, things have gotten gradually a bit better. So it's about 60-40 male to female for winning major um, literary awards. Worse than most other countries. Uh, but, but that raises a lot of questions. So um, should it be 50-50? Are an equal number of novels long-listed by men and by women? Are equal numbers of novels written by men and by women? What about the judges? Are the judges more male than female? Does that have an effect on the outcome of the judging? These kinds of questions. So Savannah did quite a lot of data gathering. Some of it had already been done by others, but she supplemented with a lot of her own, got a lot of data about judges, about writers, about books. And the thing that she came up with that I had not seen before um, with as much supporting data as she showed was that, yeah, a male author is about 50% more likely to win than a female author. But... If a female author wins, her protagonist is about 50% more likely to be a male than a female compared to a male author. So actually the gender of the protagonist is just as important, plays into it in a sort of a subtle way, but uh, it's just as important as uh, the gender of, of the author. So that the assumptions about gender and the sort of weightiness or importance of the kind of concerns, the life concerns of a man versus a woman, the way that plays into literary value systems, is multidimensional. And Savannah kind of got at that, found interesting ways to visualize it.
0: I'm having flashbacks to the time I met Toni Morrison when I was in college. She came to speak, and it was right after jazz came out, and I was in a class. African-American literature class, and because the professor knew that Toni Morrison was coming, we read three of her novels before she came in. We read Song of Solomon, Beloved, and Jazz. So Toni Morrison gave a a talk, and then we went to this reception. Everyone was totally intimidated, so she was actually kind of standing by herself. (laughs) (laughs) This is what always happens with celebrities. I walked over and said hi, Uh, offered to get her a cup of coffee, got her coffee, and told her I was in this class, and uh, she said, well, which one was your favorite? I was like, well, I like the experimentation in jazz, and of course, you know, Blood is really powerful, but really connected with Song of Solomon was the one I really like. Which is, yeah, that's the only one with a male protagonist.
1: Ah, uh, there you go. <sighs> yeah.
0: <laughs> I felt so bad. And she could tell, like, the, uh, the color drained from my face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Toni Morrison doesn't pull her punches. I do want to talk a little bit about DH and, and your own work. I'm sort of
1: thinking about the Goodreads Project. Literary Reception Studies has always been hampered by the inadequate data sets that it bases its generalizations on about the reader or about readers or about reading. Working with often sort of, and I'm thinking here of empirical literary studies as it's practiced in mainly in Germany and the Netherlands, but a little bit in the States, where you're doing lab experiments on maybe a a dozen or a couple of dozen test subjects, and they're probably students, you know, around around the place. Mm-hmm. And so you've got a very narrow and a small sample set there, and you're hoping to be able to generalize from that. And the, sci- the scientific publications tend to be very clear that we can't generalize meaningfully from this small sample, but this produces for us a hypothesis that could then be pursued in, in larger-scale work. But that larger-scale work, tends not to be done. And in literary studies itself, there's been some kind of ethnographic work on small sets of readers who are in a particular region. And usually, like all women readers of romance, in the case of Jan Radway's work, Elizabeth long studied book clubs, and they were women who were members of book clubs, uh, I think six or seven different book clubs in the greater Houston area, this sort of thing so so the hook then for Goodreads would be to say, here we have data on millions of readers, millions of readers who have um, written reviews of the novels that they like, who rate the novels that they read, who have connected themselves to other Goodreads users that they like or they like to share information with or to share recommendations with, et cetera, et cetera. And we can gather, we can scrape that data off of the Goodreads site and then we'll know a lot more about actual readers out there in the world who aren't just the students in our in, in our university. So that's the hook and it's sort of true, but in fact you can't get all the kind of data that you would want to out of Goodreads. It's not a perfect proxy for all the readers out there in the world. And then there's stuff in Goodreads that you would want to get at that's the Goodreads site for various reasons, usually more technical than actually legal or protective. The Goodreads site won't let you get. We are struggling with the problem, even with Goodreads, where we have millions of reviews, and we have all the reviews that have been published in Goodreads of two big, important sets of novels. We have significant numbers of tens of thousands of reviews of curated lists of books in specific genres, chick lit, detective lit, science fiction, and we have all the reviews written by 1,750 very heavy users, Goodreads, who've done a lot of review, at least 150 reviews each on the site. But even with that, and even with the metadata we've scraped off, we don't have enough to answer some of our research questions. One finding that's been consistent all through the project and the different ways that we've looked at it is that readers are not as eclectic or omnivorous in their reading habits and preferences as they think they are, or at least as they say they are. And more importantly, they're not as omnivorous in their reading habits as cultural sociologists seem to imagine that they are. Cultural sociologists have for 25 years been telling a story about the rise of the omnivore, the cultural omnivore, and the ways that cultural consumers have become more fluid in their movement across old boundaries between one kind of culture and another, high and low and this and that, that they're putting together these eclectic portfolios of preference. That's an interesting story. It maps on to some very optimistic narratives about globalization and about the rise of the creative class and so on. But what we're seeing, again, look, looking through various apertures, at the data in Goodreads, what we're seeing is actually quite narrow preference profiles. Readers who kind of know what they like, and they stay pretty close to a particular genre or kind of intergenre, and where it looks like they have ventured out beyond their usual reading habits, when you look more closely, you'll probably find books that you thought belonged some other category, but really, or at least equally, part of the the primary category of reading for these readers. I've been especially interested in the implications of that, assuming that these readers are roughly representative of readers overall. What are the implications of that narrowness of reading? And putting it differently, if this is happening in Goodreads, then quite aside from whether Goodreads readers are representative or not, is it the case that Goodreads itself is kind of a machine for narrowing down one's reading tastes, Mm -hmm. using its algorithms, for example, to recommend to you a book that is as much similar to other books you've read as possible, um, or a book that other readers who are as similar to you as they can find have um, have enjoyed. And if that's the case, then what's happening to cultural consumption through websites and social reading sites like Goodreads is a version of what we feel to be happening with social media generally, which is this narrowing of bandwidths and this sort of channeling of everybody into a particular niche where they never are at all encouraged to broaden their horizons, as it were. And that... That that would be kind of a scary thing since we like to imagine that literature and culture generally are good for us in that they help us to broaden our horizons and to move beyond the things that we already know and, and like. So it's a kind of a pessimistic narrative or set of narratives that are emerging from our work on Goodreads. Why were you interested in digital humanities? I have had a an interest in computers and computation since I was a kid. When I was a kid, I was a geeky mathy and sciencey kid and I was I was much more seduced by computers and all things technological when I was that age, you know, ten years old, twelve years old, fourteen years old, really through high school than I was interested in the humanities and in literature. But I was I was always I would say ambidextrous in this, in this respect. And, and so when I got to college and I was sort of exploring for a major, I went in as a math slash physics major, you know, probable. And then I took up economics for a while, which is a field that I continue to be very interested in. But from there, I migrated into literature which was really something that I became extremely passionate about, both as a creative writer and as a, and as a reader and, and, and a scholar. And I felt that I could devote my life to to literature in a way that I didn't want to do to, you know, coding. There was a question of choosing, of choosing a career path, but at the same time, as as I made my way through education, I was doing, both things. I was doing both what we now call STEM and humanities uh, all along, right into my senior year when I was taking a a sort of semi-advanced statistics and and probability course. And so I I still feel committed to that liberal arts model, to the true interdisciplinarity that for me is not just three different flavors of humanities or three different flavors of natural and life sciences. But interdisciplinarity means really crossing over those wider rivers of difference. And I think it's become harder and harder to do. And I see the liberal arts as threatened. And I worry about that more than I worry about the humanities per se, or English literature per se. I worry that liberal arts education might be imperiled. And I do think that digital humanities can be an arrow in the quiver of defense of liberal arts education, and that students can be encouraged to think of themselves as data scientists, as people who work with numbers, with code, with statistics, and as people who are passionate about poetry or about art.
0: The Price Lab for Digital Humanities at the University of Pennsylvania would like to thank Penn Libraries, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and our Price Lab Fellows for their support in producing this podcast. To learn more about the work of the Price Lab, you can visit us at pricelab.sas.upenn.edu.